Let's turn to our scripture for today. It is Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 13. Once again, the verse 9 to 13 of chapter 6, book of Matthew. Let's read this. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Japan, where our family served as missionaries for about 12 years, every New Year's Day, you'll find most Japanese people at Shinto shrines. And most of them will purchase something called omamori, which is kind of like a prayer or good luck amulet that is supposed to have some special power. One kind helps you to get into college, another helps you to stay safe while you're driving, another helps you to get pregnant, another to help you to get rich. But no matter what kind of omamori you buy, it's very important to remember something. You have to go back to the shrine on January 1st of the next year. Do you know why? Because they expire on December 31st. And while we laugh at that, sometimes Christians can treat the Lord's Prayer in a similar way, like an amulet that holds some sort of magic that if you just kind of pray it or pray it many times, it will yield some power or effect some change. Now, no doubt the Lord's Prayer is one of the most beautiful and powerful prayers in the world, but it may also be one of the most abused and or at least misused prayers in the world as well. In verse 7 of uh, preceding this passage in that chapter, it, Jesus says, When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. So Jesus already knew that his people would be inclined to babble prayers, including the Lord's Prayer, like pagans. And when the Lord's Prayer is prayed without careful understanding, when it's rambled through mindlessly like a magic spell, not only are we in danger of falling into the warning from verse 7, we also miss out on the opportunity to understand prayer, but also the Lord's teaching on the purpose of life. So let me ask you an important question. What's the purpose of life? What's the purpose of your life? What makes a life, what makes your life worth living. Now, one way that we can look at this question of what the purpose of life is and, and should be for a Christian is to see what Jesus taught us in how to pray. Jesus' foundational prayer reflects the foundational Christian life. So, there's a basic biblical principle that we can see a little bit later on in this chapter in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And similarly, what you pray about and for, there your heart is also, right? Think about what you pray about. That's a reflection of your heart. It overflows from your heart. And like probably most of you, you're praying for your families and for your 
different aspects in your life. Your prayers are a reflection of your heart. So if we want to understand the Lord's heart, the Lord's treasure, we can find it in the Lord's prayer. So you have the text uh, in your bulletin or you have your Bibles open. Maybe you have a pencil or pen with you as well. Keep that open. Let's look at this text together. Let's look at this passage, Our Father. So first of all, this is a shockingly direct and personal addressing of God as Father. And then secondly, Jesus shockingly invites us into his sonship. Now, if there was anyone who could claim exclusive right to call God as my Father exclusively, it was Jesus. So in teaching us to pray to God as our Father, Jesus invites us into his family identity. This is who we are. We are children of the same Father as Jesus Christ. And every single time that we address God as my Father, we, we should be reminded of our adoption in Jesus Christ. Imagine, imagine what prayer sounds like to God. Every single moment of every single day in thousands of languages, in hundreds of millions of voices, beautiful voices of young and old spiritual adoptees calling out to God saying, Our Father. And one day, our Father will be addressed as my Father by children of God from every tribe and language and nation and people on earth in heaven. So here we see that in addition to the closeness of God as Father, that there is an overwhelming, undeniable otherness of God, God in heaven, that God has perspective, heavenly perspective that we do not share. He has unbelievable reach. He has grand exaltation, heavenly authority. He sees what we do not see. He dwells where we do not dwell. And we take comfort as we deal with the challenges and the darkness and the problems on earth that we have a Father who is in heaven. And to this Father in heaven, we, the church, the people of God, are taught to pray. And we can see in this first half, these first three petitions, Again, look with me at the scripture, prayers for worship, kingdom, and obedience. So first, worship. Hallowed be your name. So for you kids, to hallow means to worship or make holy. So here, purpose is now being revealed. The first petition that Jesus teaches us to pray is toward the glory and the worship of our heavenly Father. Hallowed be your name. So this is a New Testament flip side of the third commandment. May your name not be taken in vain, but instead be treated as holy. It's a heartfelt prayer that God would be worshipped and adored. It's a prayer that nothing would compete in our hearts with our affection for God. But personal worship, personal doxology is not enough. God's purposes are global. There are today three billion people who have little to no access to the good news of Jesus Christ. This should move us to compassion, but also to a holy dissatisfaction. God's people should have a holy dissatisfaction with the worshiplessness of the world. That there are billions who do not worship or hallow the, 
the, the loving God who created them. Hallowed be your name, both personal but also global. Your kingdom come. Uh, this is very much related to the first petition as each individual hallows and, and worships God, the kingdom grows. Jesus teaches us to pray kingdom-ushering, kingdom-calling prayers. So how far have we come toward the building of the kingdom of God? So we've seen tremendous advances of the gospel in all the world. We've seen a tremendous expansion of the kingdom of God. Christianity today is a more global faith than at any time in all of history. Christianity today is a more global faith than the world has ever known. There are Christians literally in every single nation on earth. There's been tremendous kingdom growth, especially in Africa and in Latin America and in Asia. Christianity today is stronger in the southern hemisphere than it is in the northern hemisphere, stronger in the east than it is in the west. And this growth is a part of a really important message, that Christianity is not an American religion, and missions is not from west to east. It is from everywhere to everywhere, reflecting both the reality of our global faith as well as the global goal of that faith. From every nation to every nation, every single nation, a mission-sending nation, every nation a part of God's global and eternal purposes, every church, every Christian, a part of God's global and eternal purposes. So did you know that today, 70% of the global mission force are from the majority world, the non-Western world? 70%. The gospel is going forth from everywhere to everywhere. Now, 100 years ago in Korea, there were less than 20,000 Christians. Today, Christ South Korea alone has sent out more than 21,500 missionaries to 175 nations. How about China? Uh, the third Lausanne Congress in 2010 in Cape Town brought together 4,000 leaders from 200 nations. At the time, it was the largest and most globally representative gathering of church leaders in the 2,000-year history of our faith. Even though the 200 Chinese pastors and leaders who were invited to attend were met at the Shanghai and Beijing airports and were prevented by the Chinese police from getting on the airplanes to South Africa, the Lord had another plan, another purpose, and he used that whole experience to help identify and help unite the top leaders of the church in China. And it's been such a joy and a privilege for us as a Lausanne movement to help support strategic planning of a really historic event, uh, um, effort by the Chinese church. So did you know that in China, there are 100 cities with a population of 1 million or more? And in those 100 cities, there are 5,000 train and subway stops. So our goal is to see a church planted in every single one of those 5,000 train and subway stops in China in those 100 cities. Over the past 200 years, it's estimated that 20,000 missionaries have been sent into China. So now our hope is to see 20,000 missionaries sent from China one Chinese missionary for every missionary that has been sent to China in the last 200 years. They desire to repay their missionary debt. 
the global church is reaching out and mobilizing from every nation to every nation. But there's much work to be done toward the building of God's kingdom. So at the first Lausanne Congress, the mission strategy of reaching UPGs, unreached people groups, was introduced to the world. Since Lausanne in 1974, more than 9,000 of these distinct ethno-linguistic people groups have been reached with the gospel. We celebrate that. But there are still more than almost 8,000 unreached peoples in the world that represent about 3 billion people. And so we pray, Lord, may your kingdom come among the 8,000 unreached people groups in the world. Lord, mobilize your church toward that end. Lord, mobilize renewal toward that end. And for the building of God's kingdom, for the hallowing of God's name, we pray, your will be done. And this is very simply the prayer for God's revealed will to be done. And the essential way that his will is done and honored is when we, God's people, when we obey when we walk in his ways, when we live, in, live out the purposes of God in our lives, when we live for God in every aspect of our lives with love for him, with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, worship, kingdom, and obedience. So again, keep, a, keep an eye on this passage. Uh, from this first half, these first three petitions, uh, let me suggest a summary of Jesus's teaching on the purpose of life for every Christian from every single nation, and it's this, to passionately pray for and pursue the global and eternal worship of and living for God. To passionately pray for and pursue the global and eternal worship of and living for God. So now let's look, move on to the second part of the Lord's Prayer. So that right half on your, in your bulletins. So commentators, good commentators, uh, suggest that, you know, the first three petitions focus on the preeminence of God, uh, while the final three focus kind of on personal needs. But, but there's, there's more than that, right? Look, look at this with me. In the first half, Jesus is teaching us to cry out to God to accomplish, even through our prayers and our lives, God's purpose for global and eternal worship. And the second part now is, is not just, okay, no, now, now I get to talk about what I want or my personal needs. Instead, it is, it is a prayer for provision of all that is needed for such purpose of life as laid out in the first section. Let me say this again. See this with me. The second half of the Lord's Prayer is prayer for provision of all that is needed for the purpose of life, which is to passionately pray for and pursue the global and eternal worship of and living for God. And it starts off like this. Give us this day our daily bread. Towards the life that passionately prays for and pursues the global and eternal worship of and living for God, we, we, we have needs. Bread. The standard is not luxury, but sustenance. We, you know, we live in a country where we have to deliberately limit our food intake and the caloric content of our food. 
So has the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, become meaningless in our society and churches? Can, can we just cross it out of our Bibles or not even bother to pray it because we don't need it? But, but, but if not, if, if it is needed, would you, would you ask God, what are you trying to teach me? Why, why do I need to even pray this, Lord? I mean, you may be thinking, Lord, why do I even need to, to pray this prayer? I don't, I don't need to. I, I, have, I have two cars. I have a retirement fund. I have disposable income. Would you, would you pray later today and just ask God, why, why, why would you ask me to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. You do understand and know that only North America could have invented such a term, disposable income. Disposable diapers, disposable dishes, disposable income. You know, essentially, disposable income is, is saying that everything beyond daily bread, everything beyond sustenance is mine. Everything beyond daily bread is discretionary funds. Perhaps, then, the reason why Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, is because he wants us to view every gift, every dollar, every resource, not as a personal slush fund, but as provision to pursue passionately Christ's purpose for life, for the global and eternal worship of and living for God. Next, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Uh, this is a prayer for forgiveness and the power to forgive. Again, for our kids, debts means, our, our debts means our sins. Th this is a reminder of our most basic, in addition to our most basic physical need, bread, of our most basic spiritual need, which is forgiveness. It's a reminder of our sinfulness and also a reminder of God's mercy. It's a reminder of the gospel which is the very foundation of the purpose of God emphasized in the first half of this prayer. The gospel is to be received and also extended to others. So a hundred years ago, the gospel began to take root in Korea. The gospel reached uh, my own family through Presbyterian missionaries. We're so very thankful. It was that faith that helped them to endure one of the darkest periods of Christian history, which was during the Japanese occupation from 1910 to 1945. As many as 30 million Asians lost their lives at the hands of the Japanese Imperial Army, perhaps the greatest loss of life in the history of mankind. My own great aunt was married off as a young teenager to avoid becoming one of more than a 150,000 Korean women and girls as young as 12 years old who were forced to be slaves of the Japanese army. In the strange and beautiful providence plan of God, he saw fit to eventually send my father to America, only to have him later say goodbye to his son and family heading back to Asia to bring the gospel to the land of his former enemy. Forgiveness like the gospel, is to be received and also extended to others. From every land to every land, even from Korea to Japan, glorious gospel design. Lead us not into temptation. 
temptation. So, so this seems key. Somewhere between our individual salvation and the pursuit of global eternal worship of God lies temptation. What, what is this? Perhaps for some, that temptation includes the worshiping of, the hallowing of God's very provision. Daily bread hoarded like the Israelites hoarding manna in the wilderness. Perhaps the temptation includes the idolizing of God's spiritual blessings as well. The idolizing of grace and spiritual comfort. And this is something that I, I, I totally understand. You know, it's the comfort of God's grace and God's love, the comfort of my own salvation, the comfort of a, a marvelous guaranteed future. But rather than looking at our own blessed circumstances and then the unfortunate circumstances of others who are without Christ and saying, thank God I'm not them, we need to recognize that our circumstances are by the grace of God alone. We need to pray for mercy that we avoid the temptations of our blessed circumstances. Have you ever considered for a moment the absolute mercy and blessedness that you were born into your circumstances? You know, you just as easily could have been born in the slums of Bangladesh or as a son of a Shinto priest in Nagoya, Japan. And if you had been born in the slums of Bangladesh or as a son of a Shinto priest, how would you want the people in this room to respond? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There is a severe and deadly persecution of the church in many nations around the world, especially in something called the 1040 window, which is 10 degrees north to 40 degrees north latitude, stretching in the east from Japan through China, Southeast Asia, Middle East, and North Africa. The most severely persecuted church in the world is in North Korea. In North Korea, you have all of the greatest challenges of humanity combined, severe poverty, oppressive communism, global isolation, no political freedom, no religious freedom, no gospel. Now, around North Korea, you can see uh, signs with these words, we have nothing to envy. Now, of course, this is ridiculous in a nation with so little food and freedom or hope, but it, but it wasn't always so. In the early 1900s, the city of Pyongyang was known as the Jerusalem of the East. In 1907, the year of the great Pyongyang revival, 50,000 Koreans came to Christ. But since 1995, more than 4 million North Koreans have died of starvation. According to one source, more than 500,000 have fled to China for survival, m many of them women, many of whom have become victims of human trafficking. As many as one million have been killed in concentration camps with cruel brutality. Nowhere in the world is Christian persecution more fierce. Despite the risks, the church is growing. There are an estimated 400,000 believers in Jesus Christ. 
North Korean Christians who have nothing of worldly value understand that in Christ they have nothing to envy. But we Christians in America, we who have everything, so much food, so, so much freedom, so many resources, we who have the gospel, we envy. We, we envy. We envy as we surf the internet. We envy as we see people around us. We envy as we watch TV. We envy their house, their car, their position, their education, their looks, their family, their spouse, their more and more. Brothers and sisters, you have nothing to envy. You have nothing to envy. You have everything. You have Christ. Can we not learn that important lesson that the North Korean government would teach us? We have nothing to envy. So where do we go from here? So let me suggest a, f a few more things for us to be thinking about. Number one, repent, brothers and sisters. Repent. Repentance is not only for the moment that you become a Christian. It, it is desperately needed for every single day of the Christian life. We, we repent of the things that, that compete in our hearts for God. The things that we hallow and worship alongside God. The things that we intermingle in our worship with God and worshiping of other things as well, whether that's our, our money or our grades or our people around us or, or success or our very own selves. Repent, brothers and sisters. Number two, respond to the gospel. Respond to the gospel. Jim Boyce of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he, he used to uh, teach about financial giving. People asked, um, how, how, much, how, much should we, how much should I give? And Dr. Boyce said, think about the gospel and then give in response to the gospel. And I think it's the same for like the whole of our lives. Think of the gospel and then live your life in response to the gospel. It's a good guidance. Thirdly, pray. Pray. <laughs> so simple, right? Pray the Lord's Prayer. Good application. Pray this prayers of Scripture back to God. Look through all the wonderful prayers in Scripture. Pray those back to God. Pray those over your family. Pray those over your life. Pray God's purposes back to Him. He delights when we do that. Make God's agenda your agenda, His passions your passions. Pray for the world. Hallowed be your name in Japan, your kingdom come in North Africa, your will be done in China. This is a ministry. Don't underestimate the power of a prayer ministry. Jesus is teaching us and empowering us for a prayer ministry for the whole world and the whole of our lives in the Lord's Prayer. And then finally, just live it out. Live it out. Live out the passions and purposes of God. Live it out. So how? How do we do this? So invest in God's purposes 
with the whole of your life. So it, it kind of comes back to a very basic question of how we're supposed to enjoy life properly, okay? So it's so basic, it's so simple, but it's so easy to forget, okay? So it, it, li listen to this. It's, it's so simple that you may miss it, okay? Every gift of God is to be enjoyed as from God and not like a God, okay? Every gift of God is to be enjoyed as from God and not like a God. That every blessing be recognized as a blessing from God. Every resource mobilized towards His purposes as a part of our worship to Him. And I think that's true both for the gifts that God has given to us, like our finances, our treasure, but also for our time and for our talents. So you all have gifts that can be mobilized for global impact in missions. So, for example, raise your hand if you speak English. All right, so a lot of you do. God can use that. English teaching is the most common mission work in Japan. You could do that for a summer mission trip. And with thousands of refugees from all around the world on our doorsteps, their most urgent need from day one is to learn English. Can God use you to help them for that? Toward what impact of the nations? So what I'm advocating is this. The stewardship of life with all of God's people using all of his gifts to serve all of God's purposes and passions. Every gift and talent enjoyed and employed for God and for his purposes. Now, for too long, 90, 99% of the church has felt excused or excluded from the Great Commission. And that's the 99% of you who aren't ministers or missionaries. But Ephesians 4.12 talks about how the ministry of the 1% is actually to equip the 99 for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19 talks about how Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, the message of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel. So for the Lausanne movement, you know, we really believe that one of the secrets to the fulfillment of the Great Commission is the unleashing of the ministry of the 99% across the globe. But for too long, Christians have utilized their God-given talents to advance industry and education and arts and sciences and sports and technology, but not also for kingdom gain. And for too long, Christians have invested their God-given treasure for temporary enjoyment, but not for eternal blessing. You know, Jesus' teaching is so wise and right. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is teaching that money is the best indicator of your heart passions and priorities. So to give some 
global perspective, if you make $25,000 per year, you are the richest 10% of the world. In fact, if you make $2,500 per year, you are the richest 15% of the world. And if you happen to make $50,000 or more per year, you are the richest 1% of the world. How would God call you and your family to invest the financial resources that he has given to you? How, how do you steward what he has provided for you beyond your daily bread? Now, as a general guideline on giving, I encourage Christians, budget 10% or more for the church and 10% or more for global missions. And I want you to know that there are places around the world among many Christians who are much poorer than we are for whom such giving is not a radical standard, but a starting point. And the more that he has provided should allow for more generous giving and higher percentages of giving. As Randy Alcorn has said, he said, God prospers you not to increase your standard of living, but to increase your standard of giving. I mean, the potential in this room alone to impact the whole world through our finances alone is mind-boggling. One of our privileges and callings as a church is to be hoping and praying and working toward God mercifully raising up missionaries from our own congregation, from among our own young people and even among our older people. And we should be prepared to support generously to send them to the nations. No missionary who is raised from renewal should struggle to raise their financial support. If we are doing our part in praying the Lord's Prayer and living out the Lord's Prayer, we have the opportunity to make eternal impact, and that is only possible if we will invest what is temporal toward that end. How can God use you and your family to bring about the answers to your prayers for God's name to be hallowed in all the earth? Now, in recent days, Lausanne has been focusing our attention on the world in 2050. So according to the Pew Research Center, 2050 is when Islam will overtake Christianity both in number and in influence. Now, we know how the story ends, but we need to respond to our times and help prepare for our children's and our grandchildren's future. And this is critical because, you know, 2050 is, is not only when Islam is projected to overtake Christianity, it, it's also a world where we see several global crises coming all at once. In 2050, there will be 200 million climate refugees, people who are forced to leave their homes because of land erosion or lack of food or water. Scholars predict that in 2050, uh, it will be marked by pandemics, climate disasters, mass migrations, food insecurity, and widening inequality and debt. This will massively affect life as we know it, and also massively affect world missions. And it is a massive opportunity for the gospel. How do we prepare? And better yet, how can we help to shape the world in 2050? You know, our children, our grandchildren will inherit the world in 2050. 
They'll have no choice in the matter, good or bad. That world isn't our world for many of us to, to live in, certainly not to lead. But it is our world to help shape. But shaping the world in 2050 can't start in 2045. It needs to start now. We can start that process now. And it starts with God shaping us now. We need to make disciples and be disciples who are ready for such a world and are a part of building a better one. You have a critical part to play to help shape the world and the global church and global mission for 2050. One simple step that each one of us can, can, can make is to pray the Lord's Prayer and actually do something about it. God can use your prayers and your life that responds to that prayer to help this prayer become a reality. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to forget that Jesus himself prayed this prayer, and he did something about it. He went to the cross and made all of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer possible. He made it possible for the Lord's Prayer to be truly prayed by you and truly lived out beautifully and powerfully through you. Will you embrace the greatest opportunities for this generation? You can begin by passionately praying for and pursuing the global and eternal worship of and living for God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name in China. Hallowed be your name in Yemen and Tunisia. Hallowed be your name in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. Hallowed be your name in our hearts and in our families and our lives. Oh Lord, may your kingdom come in all the world. May your will be done in our lives and beyond on earth as it is in heaven. And toward that end, O oh God, would you give us this day our daily bread. Would you forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors? And God, would you lead us not into temptation in all of its varied forms? but deliver us from evil and from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. And may yours be the glory forever and ever. Amen.